Though I was um, never in a lead pastor role, I've worked in several other churches before being here and, and served in many others. And it's, it's just such a blessing to have uh, a team of people like this that John leads to, to lead us in worship and to prepare our hearts. And week after week, the work you guys put into it, it's just really appreciated. So thank you very much, guys. And, and uh, it's, it's such, it is just such a blessing. So, <clears throat> um, and it makes everything else. I mean, John's in charge of the whole worship service experience and everything, and the way that, that he combines these different pieces week after week is um, such a great comfort. So anyway, as we're prepared and we're jumping into back into Daniel chapter 11 and into some of the teachable moments that come from that, I know many of you, maybe this could be your first Sunday, and we're now a year and a month into the teaching of Daniel, and so you, you're kind of picking up here near the end, which is okay, but, but to understand where we are in the book of Daniel, here you have this man, this man who is uh, essentially kidnapped as a, as a boy, along with several of his friends, taken to another nation, raised there. And, and though we have the example of him, it's, it's one of the things we love about Daniel is that when you say, what's it like to stand firm with your faith, even in a culture that's not friendly to your faith, what does that look like when you're a child or a teenager? Well, look to Daniel. And what does that look like when you're a leader and when you have a position of authority and when you're under authority? Well, look to Daniel. And what does it look like when you're old and you're the end of your life and you need to make sure you finish strong? Well, look to Daniel. He's a, he's a wonderful, lifelong example of someone who's, who stays faithful to what they're doing. And here we are in Daniel 11 of 12, 12 chapters in Daniel, we're in chapter 11, and here we have an angelic being who we met back in chapter 10, who is giving Daniel a preview of the rise and fall of the Greek empire. A pretty detailed one. And remember, all of this is in the future for Daniel. It's in our past, but it's in Daniel's future. Um, they starts, the, the angelic being starts with Alexander the Great. And then where we are, he has been describing the ongoing civil wars, primarily between the kingdom of the south, which, if you want to know this, is the Ptolemaic Empire, and the kingdoms of the north, which are the Seleucid Empire. Um, and, and this is how, for, for us, honestly, for you guys, keeping track, if you're not a historian or whatever, keeping track of all these may be difficult, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But in order to have a good basic understanding, I want you to know this. There's, there are four kingdoms that the Greek empire, after Alexander the Great, Great broke up into, only two continue to grow in power, and eventually they absorb the others. And then the off-and-on war between the two of them, was generally known as the Syrian Wars, lasted from two, about 274 B.C. And remember, remember your history. In BC, when you're in B.C., the numbers count the opposite direction as you move forward. They count down towards zero. So from 274 B.C. until 168 B.C., so a little over 100 years, when Antiochus IV, known as Epiphanes, ended this war, the Syrian wars, prematurely, even though he was winning. Before we're done today, I'll try to explain why. So as we listen to the back and forth nature of this war, we try not to think about the thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands of soldiers dying every time they go up against each other of all the widows and the orphans created by this back-and-forth conflict, and of the millions and millions of tons of resources poured into defeating one another. In fact, it is this internal Greek civil war 
and the amount of resources and manpower that they, that they pour into defeating one another that causes them to be easily defeated from the outside when the time comes. And I pray this isn't an analogy for us. Now in Daniel chapter 11, his, verse 10, his, meaning Seleucus, the king of the north, So his, the king of the north's sons, shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north and he shall raise a great multitude and it shall be given into his hand. And when that multitude is taken away, his heart will be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail." For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. And those times among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. So what happens here is various city-states and provinces under the rule of the Greek empires, they start popping up like a game of whack-a-mole. There's one after the other. This city over here goes, hey, you seem weak. We're going to declare ourselves independent. So the Seleucid Empire has to go over and shut them down. And then another one over here goes, no, no, we see weakness. You're far away from us. We've not seen you in a while. We're going to declare ourselves independent. And the Ptolemaic Empire has to wander over there and knock them down. And this happens back and forth over and over. The Jews were one of those groups throughout history. As the Jews are, when they are under the control of another empire, they have a very nasty habit of deciding they no longer need to be part of that empire. And sometimes their own prophets, the Jewish prophets, which you can read when you read through Isaiah and others, they're going, don't do this. Don't do this. This is God's judgment on us. We need to wait patiently until God is done judging us. And leaders of Israel will go, no, uh -uh. we've not seen those guys in a while. We're on our own again. We're going to declare ourselves independent. And that doesn't work out for them. What ends up happening is some massive imperial army comes in and slaps them back down to where they belong. And and that has happened over and over again. They did it under the Assyrians. They did it under the Babylonians. They did it under the Greeks. They did it under the Romans. It It is a constant thing that we see them do when they're under somebody else's control. They're not the only ones. Kind of everyone did it. So... Here's what happens. It costs them. The war rages in the region of Judea, finally. The king of the north and the king of the south have a a series of battles in the Judea region, the region of Israel. Near the source of the Jordan River, the southern king, the Ptolemaic king and his generals, especially his generals, flee to the city of Sidon. I think we have a map of this. So you can see the Ptolemaic empire, if you'll remember, that's Egypt. So even though they're Greeks, they now run Egypt. In fact, they call themselves pharaohs um, while they're down here. And they run this area of Egypt. And remember, the Seleucid Empire is way over here. They come together. I'll do it over here too. Here you have the Ptolemaic Empire's down here. The Seleucid Empire's over here. Well, a lot of times when they end up fighting, they end up fighting in this region. And in fact, that's what happens here. Oh, look at you. little arrow going over there. So what happens is one of the great generals of the south, a guy named Scopus... He gets the entire Greek army, the southern army, trapped up there in Sidon. (laughs) That's entertaining. Um, It gets trapped up here in Sidon, which is a fortified city, okay? So that's what's going on. He gets his army trapped up there in a fortified city, just like Daniel's going to talk about and has been talking about, and there he is defeated. 
And for the first time since the breakdown between Alexander the Great's empire, now the Ptolemies are not in charge of the Judean region. And they were relatively, relatively nice to the Jews. They let the Jews have their own practices, have their own religions, have their own that kind of stuff. They let them do that for the most part and kind of left them alone, which is apparently the best way to lead the Jews, is to kind of leave them alone. And that was how that was happening all throughout history. But now the Seleucids, they're now in charge. That's going to have some amazing consequences. So now the northern king, who is now represented by Antiochus the Great III, now they held all of the region, including the Holy Land. Listen to how the angel described this several hundred years before it happened. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But when he comes against him, he shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So this is a description of Scopus and his army being destroyed in Sidon. In fact, um, some of you guys may think this is interesting, um, you guys, some of the, especially some of you kids may appreciate this. This seems funny to me. No one could rescue this army, and they had to surrender. They were giving nothing but their lives when they surrendered. Literally. They were literally stripped bare and sent home. So an entire army of stark naked people were sent marching south to Egypt. That had to be a sight. It's funny to us, probably not so funny to them, but it's funny to us to think about how that would have appeared. So the angel describes it that way. This glorious land is now under the control of the Seleucid Empire, the king of the north, and he has, quote, destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with strength of his whole kingdom, verse 17, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Now, I'm going to give you a little insight into my life. So as I'm, as I'm digging through this and doing this research, I come to this section about this, that this daughter of women which is, it's interesting that we have the son of man as one of the references to any human, any male human, any child of Adam, any, any, but then we have this daughter of women who's now portrayed. And of course, Jesus takes on the specific title, son of man, as we found back in an earlier chapter in Daniel, that is a specific prophecy of a divine ruler. And that's why Jesus refers to himself as son of man over and over again. Here we have this phrase, daughter of women, which is an interesting one. And so we go, okay, so who is this daughter of women sent by the northern king? We look for that and go like, can we find that in history? Well, it turns out we can, but I want to explain kind of how that played out for me. So I go and look, and the first, the first thing, in fact, Pete Teoker last week asked me, he's like, we're going to get to the section about Cleopatra. And I was like, I've not got there yet, Pete, so we'll see. So, but, I, but in my head, I'm thinking, Cleopatra? I mean, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, she wasn't, wasn't she around for the Romans? You don't, you know, I'm talking about Liz Taylor. Liz Taylor, that Cleopatra. Ever, anybody in that age range? Like, that Cleopatra. And I'm going, that just that feels like the wrong time. And so I look, and sure enough, one of the commentaries says this was, uh, this was Cleopatra. But then the next commentary says, not Cleopatra. Clearly not Cleopatra, and here's why. It gives this whole argument. So I'm, I'm going, I don't, I don't know what to believe about this. So I'm going to go, no. I'm not convinced it's Cleopatra. Then I look to another commentary, and I, start, I literally wrote up like a paragraph to put in the sermon about why I didn't think it was Cleopatra, because it seemed like an interesting historical touch point. 
Then I, I look at another one. So Barnes Notes is one of my favorite commentaries. I really have a lot of faith in Barnes Notes. It's one of the most solid commentaries out there. And I go to Barnes Notes, and the first line in Barnes Notes about this verse is, the daughter of women is unquestionably Cleopatra. Well, great. <laughs> right? Back to the drawing board. Let me, so, so why does Barnes think that, that this would be a prophecy about a woman who does not fit within this timeline at all? I'm telling you this for a couple of reasons. One is, when you run into something where history and Scripture don't seem to line up, what we know about that is that that means our understanding of at least one of them is wrong. It may be our understanding of history is wrong. It may be that our understanding of Scripture is wrong. Or, of course, it may be that both are wrong. We've talked about this with science. I'll reference that a little bit later. So one of them is off my understanding. It's not that Scripture is wrong, and it's certainly not that whatever happened in history is wrong either. It's just that we may have a misunderstanding of one of them or both of them, so I keep digging. This was a great case of me having a misunderstanding of history. Turns out, the Cleopatra that we all know, the famous one, uh, played by Liz Taylor, is Cleopatra the Seventh. So that's Cleopatra. Uh -huh. See, none of you knew that, did you? You all thought, I only know about one Cleopatra. Me too. So there's Cle this is Cleopatra the Seventh, in fact, is the famous one. The woman in this passage is clearly, maybe I would go as far as Barnes and say unquestionably, Cleopatra the first. There she is. Beautiful, isn't she? The, the whole not having eyes thing just takes away from the, the effect, I think. But there you go. There's a statue of Cleopatra the first. So, Antiochus the third, the king, the great, the king of the north, if you want to stick with those, wanted to end the war with the Ptolemaic Empire. Though he was winning, it was costing him so much to win, it was no longer worth it. This often is, becomes the case, right? These are called Pyrrhic victories, named after a different general. And, and we, as, as Texans, we are all very familiar with a very famous Pyrrhic victory. It is what? The Alamo. Good. Wow, that should have been much more emphatic. You guys don't remember the Alamo anymore, huh? That's, a, that's not a thing. It was the Alamo. At the Alamo, allegedly, one of Santa Ana's generals said, many more victories like this and we will lose the war, right? So it is a, if it, if it costs you too much to win, that's what was going on with the northern king. He was winning, but it was costing him so much to win, it was eventually going to cause him to lose. Again, I'll explain that a little bit more here in a second. So, in an effort to cease this awful resource drain, he takes his daughter, Cleopatra the First, they, she didn't go by that until after the second one came around. Like you don't, that's, remember that's a, you don't go by that. Um, so he married off his daughter to the king of the south to help create peace, but it didn't work out for the Seleucid king because his daughter marries the Ptolemaic king, the king of the south, and likes him better than she liked her dad. So now she becomes a force of power for the southern kingdom rather than for the northern kingdom. It didn't work out for him. Kind of like when it says, He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. It was not. All right, so I, can't find, I couldn't find the correct answer to this for some time. It just wasn't making sense, as I just explained. So it turns out there were seven Cleopatras, but you may be going, Wow, honestly, Chris, all through chapter 11, um, I, and, and even some of chapter 10 and some of these other chapters, all this history kind of muddles up my brain. And it's hard for me to follow. It's okay. You're in good company. That is, that is something that happens in these sections, and it's not our fault. It's their fault. Here's why. There are at least four Antiochuses that we run into in this chapter. 
And by the way, there are at least five other Antiochuses of Greek myth and Greek poetry and Greek philosophy. There are at least 14 Ptolemies in history. And to make matters worse, the Ptolemies, the pharaohs of Egypt, they had this nasty little tradition of marrying their sons to their own daughters. So here's literally, you're looking at several generations of here's what happened. You have a king, his name is Ptolemy, a pharaoh, Ptolemy. He has this wife from the Seleucid Empire named Cleopatra. They get married and they have a son and his name is Ptolemy. Good. Then they have a daughter and her name is Cleopatra and they marry them to one another in order to keep their bloodline pure. So they marry them to one another, brother and sister. And then this new brother and sister marriage, they have a son and they name him Ptolemy. Good. And then they have a daughter and they name her Cleopatra and they marry them to one another. And this happens seven times. So if you're confused, imagine what their households were like. You think, if you're one of those families that names your kids by all the same first sound, which I've never understood, like some kind of, anyway, you're, you're just beating yourself up for some reason. But I mean, I, I call my kids every name, including the dog's names, every time I try to get one of their attentions. Um, but that's, I can't imagine what this would have been like. So when you go back and look at this history, here's the problem. All these commentaries make this assumption when they say this was clearly Cleopatra, they assume I'm nowhere near as ignorant as I am. And that's a mistake. They assume I have the same classic edu- classical education that they had and that I know there are seven Cleopatras. They don't even know about the Liz Taylor one, or at least that Liz Taylor was one. And so they don't, they don't understand. So I read through this just like you do, and I read through it. And even reading the commentaries, which are supposed to make it clear, and sometimes I go, what is going on? Here's what I know to do. Keep digging. This is one of the cool things about studying Scripture, not just a historian even not just a commentary, is that I get to keep digging, and I get to keep digging. It's one of the greatest bonuses of being me in my life, is that I have several hours that I am required to set aside for this. You don't. You've got to work for a living. And so I get, up, I get to get up here on Sunday morning and say, listen, let me summarize three or four hours of me trying to figure out who Cleopatra is, and I get to do it in just a few minutes to explain, this is what's going on here, so that you understand that what Daniel described several hundred years before it happened is what happened, which must have been wild for the Jews as they're watching Greek history unfold before them if they're students of Daniel going, wow. So, gosh, at this point, somewhere in here, the king of the north should be trying to use a woman to solve this problem. And then they see, they see the Antiochus III give his daughter Cleopatra to the Ptolemaic Empire as a bride, and they go, yep, there it is. There it is. Just like he said, it's amazing to look at it. So, in fact, just to show you, as we were going through the um, podcast this week and talking about this, Paul pulls up this image um, of the kings of the north and the king of the south from Daniel chapter 11. So if you found yourself a little confused, this is why. This is all the people who are described in Daniel chapter 11. Half of them are called by one name, the king of the north, and half of them are called by the other name, the king of the south. But it changes all throughout the chapter in certain chronological order. So that's what you're dealing with. It's why we get to be students of Scripture and continue to study it, um, but we know not to give up. It's just like we said over and over again with scientific understanding. When there's a scientific understanding, I'll send it to you later, Cody, if you want it, um, as, as a, um, with a scientific understanding that you go, hey, if, this, if what we're learning in some kind of scientific insight doesn't seem to match with what we have in some type of biblical insight, what that means is our understanding of at least one of them is wrong. 
It doesn't mean science is not a source for knowledge and truth. Of course it is. When done properly, it will always lead eventually to fact and truth. But the problem is that we don't always understand that. We're often confused by scientific insight. The same thing, though, is true of Scripture, that we go, hey, if something doesn't seem to match up with Scripture, is that that our scientific understanding is wrong? Possibly. Our our understanding of the natural world? Possibly. Is Is it possible that our understanding of Scripture is wrong? Of course, that is also possible. It's not that Scripture is wrong, but that our understanding of it can be wrong. And we have to be humble enough as being students of Scripture to say that and to engage with that and to be willing to learn from what we're getting from all sides, historical understanding and insight and revelation and what we have in Scripture as well. Those are important. Um, And so it, it is fun to get to continue to study it's part of what I love when I run into something in Scripture that I just that I don't understand. It boggles my mind is it means I now get to dig. But it also, as I'm going to show you the prophecy concept that, that John read from a passage from 2 Peter a minute ago. 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And we have the prophetic word, which is what he read earlier, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, important, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now this passage, I think Peter is primarily, if not exclusively, talking about the Hebrew Scripture prophecies, what we would call the Old Testament prophecies, about the person of the Messiah about the person and work of the Messiah, who Peter is saying, listen, as we keep studying this and we keep finding more and more evidence, it was in fact Jesus. And that, that, that keeps being confirmed to us more and more and more. And the deeper we study, the more obvious it becomes true. There he's, he's saying, I go back to these prophetic words from Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and I go, there he is. There it is. I don't know if you've, if you've had that experience where you, one of my favorites is for people who have grown up in the church singing hymns and praise songs all their life, but they've never just like read all the way through the book of Psalm. And then they read through the book of Psalms and they think, I don't, I don't know any of these Psalms, I don't have any of them memorized. But then you start reading through the book of Psalms and you go, wait, wait, I do have that one memorized. I already know that verse. I already know that passage. Hey, Shane and Shane did this one. I know it by heart. This was, I got this one exactly right. Put a little rhythm to it, and I know this psalm. It's exactly the psalms are confirmed to you as you re-experience them the way you've grown up. It's the same kind of thing. You're reading through the, you can imagine Peter going back and reading through the book of Ezekiel and going, there he is. You know what? There it is. It's like we talked about the Mississippi River Bridge. That you're driving along and something in prophecy gets fulfilled and you go, there it is. What do you know? Just like he said. There it is again. That's exactly what's going on here. This example, as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit, I believe God can still give people special, special messages. Any modern believer, of course, must evaluate any special message that they feel like they get from God via Scripture. Scripture is the foundational way that we test that, that we see it, and then treat it with extreme humility. In today's world, we always have a bunch of self-proclaimed prophets who make direct, direct claims. We saw it recently with the election. There were several um, Christian 
quote, prophets who stood up and made predictions about what was going to happen in the election. The problem is the Second Peter passage talking about how all prophecy comes from God doesn't end where we stopped reading. That's where the chapter ends. It's a weird place for a chapter break, actually. The next verse begins in chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, the false prophets who prophesied, this is the word of the Lord, and who were wrong... They are done then, they're done now. They're not to be listened to. According to the book of Deuteronomy, they're to be killed. But in today's world, at minimum, Christian, beloved, brethren, if you put your faith in a self-proclaimed prophet and they proclaim the word of God and it doesn't happen the way they say God says it's going to happen, you are done with them. You unsubscribe, you stop following, you don't read their stuff anymore, it's done. That is why when we engage with any insight from God, it has got to be treated with extreme humility. And I mean this humbly. I have had several times in my life, in times of prayer or concentration or whatever, when I feel like God is leading me in a certain way or teaching me something or showing me something. I remember a specific example of that happening, and I was super afraid of it and saying, and this is, I believe this is how we have to say it today. If we feel like God is leading us something in particular about our lives, we have to say, listen, guys, I'm, I'm not sure. I think maybe God is leading me in some certain way, but, but here's the deal. It's, it's like I'm a broken radio, and I think I've picked up some kind of signal, and there's so many ways this could go badly. Like I could just be flat wrong. This could be what I want to hear, so it's what I'm saying it could be that I, I ate pizza yesterday and now that's affecting me. It could be any number of different things that could cause me to feel like I'm hearing from God. And so we have to always be super humble in the way we engage with that. I think it is inappropriate today for a Christian to stand up and say, I am speaking with the voice of God. And I will tell you, if you do, you better be right. And it's not what happens. So I'm a big fan of saying we have to be so humble when we see this. Daniel is our model of what prophecy should... Because it's not even really Daniel who's prophesying. It's an angel telling Daniel. Daniel's just writing it down. An angel, an angelic being is making a prophecy. And that's where we hang our hats is that we go, wow, he said this is going to happen. And here's what's cool. It then happened. Really, strangely, accurately happened, which is what you would expect if God is the one speaking. If God isn't the one speaking, then you're going to have to do a whole bunch of somersaults and contortions and that kind of stuff. But we still live with a, in a culture where one in five Americans apparently have visited a psychic during COVID. Don't, don't do that. Um, we used to have a, a right across the street from one of the churches where I worked, we had a psychic uh, palm reader type of person. And I always joked about how I was going to tell the youth I was going to go over there and walk in and, and just walk in first and go like, before I say anything else, tell me my name. Because if you don't know it, I'm not interested. Like a, and then tell me why I'm here. The problem was the word psychic was misspelled on her sign. And I always thought that was a bad indicator. You guys remember, it actually was mis- I said physic, physic and palm reader. Um, and so I, I would say, remember, by the way, you may, you may even remember Psychic Friends Network. 
You remember that? Multi-billion dollar company, Psychic Friends Network. You haven't heard from them in a while, have you? No, you haven't. They went out of business in like 2012, if I remember correctly, they went out of business. The reason they had, the reason they cited for their bankruptcy was, not kidding, bad stock investments. I, I feel like I don't need to say much more to add to that. Like, I feel like that's a, an end of a story. Okay. Glad all those people sent you all that money. Um, psychics. Uh, okay, so this is something that there's still so many millions of Americans who check their horoscope every day. This is not prophecy. This is not the biblical concept. At best, it is meant to be mocked the way we mock it. At worst, it can be dangerous. It can be something that catches that you get caught up in and you don't know how to get out of and that you truly are engaged in spiritual warfare. You don't want to do that kind of stuff in regards to that, those. So here we are after all of this. We're back in Daniel chapter 11. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and so capture many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back to the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. This is more of the same of what we're talking about. The, the Antiochus III travels up and down the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, trying to take cities, and he conquers many of them. Finally, he gets stopped, and I'll explain that in a second. He gets stopped in a way that's quite shocking. He is turned back home. He has to go back home. He tries some other options. It doesn't work out. And eventually, he does, quote, stumble and fall. Now, if this is a reference to his fall politically and in power. That's one thing. We know what caused that. If it's a, prof- it's a prophecy about his death, we actually, to this day, no one knows exactly how Antiochus III died. We do know the answer, though, to his fall. We see it in verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of a kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. So here we go. So this, this Antiochus III, he is broken. He is destroyed. He, he then finds himself indebted. Literally, the Seleucids, who are now defeating the Ptolemies, have to stop and go back home. And the reason they have to go back home is because they ran into the new kid on the block, a city named Rome. When you ran into Rome, you ran into an unstoppable force and an an irresistible force and and a, what's the other one? Irresistible force and an immovable object, both. When you ran into the Romans, that's what they ran into, and they were humiliated by them. The Seleucids ran into the the Romans under a commander named Lucius Scipio, who would in fact become famous in his own right. The Romans humiliated the Greeks and required a massive tribute, 450 tons of silver. We know this, the Romans kept much better records than the Greeks did. 450 tons of silver, 900,000 pounds of silver is what the Greeks owed, the Seleucid Empire owed. They didn't have it. So he had to start, the Seleucids had to go back and raise their taxes in their own cities, that their cities began to rebel. He had to go back and try to hold them together, continually failed. Antiochus the Great desired of mysterious causes, somehow in a, apparently in a temple to Baal way over in Persia. Like he was trying to, trying to somehow gain ground or gain favor over there. On four different websites, I found four different theories on how Antiochus III literally died, so no one knows. The Bible seems to indicate he did so kind of bloodlessly, at least not in anger, not in war. But somehow he died. But when he did, he had, he had just recently, in an effort to find a way to pay the Romans, and the Romans are going to change history for everyone forever. 
And so the Romans take this kind of power, they demand this kind of tribute, and, and the Seleucid Empire begins to have to gather from their own people all over every piece of silver they could find. And look, luckily for them, they had recently conquered a wealthy little nation that had a whole bunch of wealth stockpiled in one little place called Jerusalem. And so what's going to happen is this is about to change Jewish history, the fact that the Romans are demanding this type of tribute from the Seleucids and the Seleucids had just recently conquered Israel, is about to play out. In his place, verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. We meet once again our favorite person in history, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. We've already run into him. We've already talked about him several times. Remember the prophecies continue to unpack a little more. And a little more. After the book of Daniel, if you've been through it, you will not forget the name Antiochus Epiphanes. I haven't. Antiochus IV. Here's what's fun. Um, Wayne Broderick, who is supposed to come preach in a couple of months again um, for us, uh, he's in his sermon on Daniel. uh, And if you know Wayne, you know his type of sense of humor. But he gets up and says, There are many, many different theories and many opinions on whether or not this is Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, There are many who think that this isn't Antiochus Epiphanes, and they're wrong. It is Antiochus Epiphanes. It's that simple. Just deal with it. So that's how, that's who this is. There's no reason not to think so. But I want to stop and take a teachable moment here at the end of this sermon. He's going to be described as someone who breaks covenants. Antiochus Epiphanes is going to be described as a man who breaks covenants. He has a really hard time. He likes making them, but he has a really, really hard time keeping them. And so I want to take a few minutes and spend a little time talking about the idea of covenants. Antiochus' tendency to break oaths and promises and contracts um, kind of motivated me to want to take a minute and talk about this. So let me talk about some examples of some covenants. One, um, the covenant of forgiveness. So a covenant, a covenant is, is us agreeing with another person about something. This is, this is an agreement. It's a promise. There's a new standard. This is what this looks like now. This is how this stands. That's what a covenant is. And a covenant um, is when we say, I'm now dedicated to this reality. So, for example, the covenant of forgiveness. The covenant of forgiveness is, is badly misunderstood. This is when we tell somebody, I expect and require no payment on your debt to me. You don't, you don't have to pay me anything. When I take people who are clients or friends or, 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 or church members through the concept of the covenant of forgiveness, what we do is we write a letter And you write an intense letter of debt. This is what I am owed by this person. And so often, sadly, in the church, sometimes we will say, oh, they don't owe me anything. It's just kind of this immediate American response. What what does this person owe you who abandoned you, who abused you, who whatever? What do they owe you? Oh, they don't owe me nothing. Well, that's not true. Of course they owe you something. They owe you all the different things that they stole from you and promised you and didn't deliver and all the things that they were supposed to be. When we say... Man, I need to forgive my dad or my mom or whatever. And we go, how do I do that? Well, I go, okay, I owe this. This person owes me. This is what it means to be a dad. And this is what this person actually was. That gap, that's something that needs to be forgiven. That's a debt. And so we, we talk through it. And usually the other person, the, the person who they write up a letter to that person, that person doesn't see it and doesn't need to see it. They can be dead. Because forgiveness is an unconditional covenant. It only requires one person. The person being forgiven doesn't have to be involved. Now, some certain types of restoration, those take two people, but 
or forgiveness doesn't. And so you say, I say this. I look at this debt, I analyze it with reality, and I say this. I covenant to this person, whether they're alive or dead, and they don't ever have to even know before God, that I forgive you. I expect and require no payment on your debt. Now, forgiveness was a hot topic for Jesus. He talks about it a lot. He keeps coming back to it over and over again. It's one of his least popular teachings among his disciples. Whenever he teaches about it, they get frustrated about it. So Jesus just teaches about it a lot. And what's his entire argument? He only ever makes one argument to defend why he calls upon his followers to enter into this type of covenant, to forgive other people. What is it? Why do we have to forgive others? Because we've been forgiven. That's the only argument he ever gives. He doesn't say it's not expensive, it's not painful, it doesn't cost us. He never says any of that because, by the way, it does. What he says is, listen, this person owes you a million dollars a month for the rest of your life. And I'm telling you to forgive that debt. To say, you know what, I expect and require no payment on that debt. The only reason I can ask you to do that, the reason I am demanding that you do that is because you owed me $10 million a month. And I forgave that debt. So you can now afford to forgive this guy his million dollars a month and you still come out nine ahead. That's That's the standard. Now, it's a covenant. And as human beings, we aren't good covenant keepers. Actually, we're pretty miserable at it. We're better or worse on given days, but we're never super good at it. But we make a covenant. People say, I can't forgive this person because I'm still going to be mad at them next week. I'm still going to, you know, I'm still going to uh, resent them next month. I'm still going to have my feelings hurt by them at this time. Right, that's because you're bad at being a covenant holder. All of us are. But that doesn't change the fact that there is a covenant. The covenant is what reminds us to come back to the truth. This person owes me nothing anymore. I expect and require no payment. Their debt is now not to me, it's to God, who, by the way, purchased me and all my debts anyway. That's what the covenant of forgiveness is. Their days were good at it, their days were bad at it, but it doesn't change it. The covenant of repentance. I change my direction and I walk in a new way. That's a covenant. I tell God, listen, I repent your way, not my way from now on. That's a covenant. Now, are we good at that? Not very. We drift to the left and we drift to the right and we don't stay on target. And God says, but the, but the covenant of the reminder of the covenant, part of why we do things like take communion, why we come and preach and talk and listen and learn is to be reminded, oh yeah, that was a covenant I agreed to. In fact, swearing fealty is one. My life is yours. I have died to myself and I live for you at your will. You made that one a few weeks ago if you were here, whether you know it or not, when you sang the hymn, take my life and let it be. That's a, that's a hymn of fealty. It's my life, not yours. It's my will. It's it's your will, not mine. Sorry, I said that backwards. It's your life, not mine. My life is now yours, not mine. Take my life, my will, my riches, everything. They're now yours, not mine. I swear fealty to you. You do it your way. Of course, the most famous of all the covenants that we always talk about is the covenant of marriage. Covenant of marriage is, is is not an unconditional covenant like some of these others are. It's a conditional covenant. It's a limited condition. There's only one condition, or it seems to be, maybe two from the teachings of, of Jesus and Paul that would allow us, and that has to do with the other person breaking the covenant first. I can't break the covenant of marriage and do so rightfully or justifiably. My, if my spouse does, then I may be released from that covenant, but I don't get to break that covenant. It's a covenant made with this person before God and whatever witnesses happen to be present. It's a covenant. Now, are there days that I'm pretty good at being married? I think so. I mean, you could, we could ask, right? Are there days that I'm pretty good at it that, that I would go like, you know what, I kind of rocked the whole husband thing today. I did that pretty well today. 
Are there days when I'm not? Don't turn and look at her. Are there days that I'm not that great a husband? Of course there are days I'm not a very good husband. There are days I'm neglectful, even, even avoidant, sometimes even unkind, impatient, all the different things husbands aren't supposed to be. There are days like that. It doesn't change, though, the covenant. It doesn't change that the fact that the covenant exists, the fact that I'm not very good at it sometimes, doesn't change the fact of it. There's a great story Tim Kimmel, the author and speaker, tells um, where he says that he was in a fight with his wife and one day, and he said something about like, you know what the truth is? I just don't even feel married to you anymore. And he said his wife just popped up out of the chair and walked out of the room. And he's like, oh, bummer. <laughs> I, that was bad, apparently. He said five or six minutes, she walks in and slams a piece of paper down on the table and says, and yet you are. <laughs> this, is, this is the truth of the situation. This is when I do marriages at the, at the um, re- reception, no, not the reception, at the rehearsal before, there is a, there is a, a um, vows, a set of vows that I do at the rehearsal the night before. I don't do these in the wedding, so don't panic. But, but I do these at the rehearsal before. I heard Gary Brandenburg do this years ago, and I since have really embellished it. Like, his, his were much more precise, mine are more embellished, but um, uh, that I do at this at the rehearsal. Here it is. I am marrying you according to God's designed, created, ordained, commanded, and prescribed standards for the marriage commitment. I am, relatively speaking, turning my back on every other man or woman in this world and devoting myself as my husband or wife to you and only you. Next to God alone will you be second. I will not abandon you. I give my unmitigated promise before God this day that I will stay with you whether things go well or not. Whether things are fun or not. Whether we are rolling in money or flat broke. Whether you stay in good health or spend the entirety of our marriage bedridden or hospitalized. I give my word that I will stay with you even if you get ugly or mean or fat or boring or indifferent. I give my unqualified assurance before the great I am that I will choose to love you sacrificially and visibly as Christ has loved me. I will choose your best at my expense time after time. I will devote myself to paying whatever price is appropriate to make sure you experience God's best. I give my unmitigated promise that I will stay with you as long as we are both alive as your partner in marriage. This covenant I make to you, and I now state before God and these other witnesses as my pledge that I will do according to what I have promised. And if I do differently than this, it should be concluded that I am a liar and not to be trusted or believed in anything again. May God have mercy on us both. Now that's meant to be sobering, and in the first service, it sobered me up enough that I actually needed an eight-second delay for someone to beat me out. But this is a, this first, the, the idea of this being very sober, I want to stop for a second and remind you what we looked all the way back at the beginning, which was that our hope, we talked about this yesterday with the men's conference, our hope is not, it is not in our own performance and our hope is not in our own abilities. It's not even in our abilities and must never be in our abilities to hold our end of a covenant. That would be wrong. The truth of the matter is, as humans, we're more like Antiochus Epiphanes. We're not very good. We like making covenants, but we're not very good at keeping them. What we want is, to, of course, we strive for that, and of course, we pay for that, and of course, we sacrifice for that, and of course, we mourn for that, and of course, we grieve through that. 
But our natural tendency, of course, is to blame somebody else for them versus us going, this is what I want and this is where I'm going and this is what I'm going to choose. But the truth is my trust is in God and His mercy and His grace alone. And that we would look to these and say, this is a covenant. I want to be a covenant keeper, but here's the good news. As bad as we are in it at these, we have a God who is a masterful covenant keeper. He is a flawless covenant keeper. Throughout history, he has made conditional covenants with his people, and he has made unconditional covenants with his people. And we have the unconditional covenant of God choosing us and selecting us and naming us and and purchasing us and adopting us, and that, that has been sealed by the Holy Spirit and by the work of his son, Jesus Christ, who was the the one who fulfilled this covenant for us. Our hope and our faith is never in us. It is always in Him. That has to be the case. This is what it means to be a Christian. Yes, we swear fealty to Him, and yes, we look to Him, and yes, we, we swear to these covenants, but we are terrible at them. Our reliance must be on Him to hold us. And the good news is, He does. And he has been confirmed and confirmed and confirmed in that. So are we working to live according to these? I pray that we are. May God have mercy on us.